Hello, I'm Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the Federal Judicial Center. Welcome to Executive Edge, a podcast focused on executive leadership in the federal judiciary. Today, we're talking with Rohit Bhargava, a leading authority on marketing, trends, and innovation. He's the founder of The Non-Obvious Company and previously spent 15 years as a marketing strategist for Ogilvy and Leo Burnett. Rohit is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of six business books and teaches a popular course on marketing and storytelling at Georgetown University. He's widely considered one of the most entertaining and original speakers on marketing disruption and innovation in the world. Today, we'll focus our conversation on his book, Non-Obvious, How to Think Differently, Create Ideas, and Predict the Future. Rohit Bhargava, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We're glad to have you. What does non-obvious thinking look like, and why does it matter to today's leaders? Non-obvious is a really intentional way, I think, of describing a point of view that I have of the world, which is that we need to start seeing the things that aren't delivered to us. And to me, non-obvious, it sort of encompasses being innovative, it encompasses being creative. But at the end of the day, it excludes something that I think we hear a lot, which is the obvious. Everybody kind of says the same thing. We hear a lot of uh, agreement about these things that are almost cliches. And what I really try and encourage people to do is, look, get outside of that. Like, see the world a little bit differently. And I try and give them tools and an approach to be able to do that. So you, when, in your book, you talk about curation as an important aspect of uh, non-obvious thinking, and you call it the ultimate method of transforming noise into meaning. Can you tell us a little bit more about curation and why it's so critical to this concept of non-obvious thinking? Yeah, I'm a, uh, uh, one of the things I try and do a lot in the book is I tell stories. I'm a storyteller. And the idea of curation kind of came from me being uh, in Norway at this really fascinating place called the Mini Bottle Gallery, which is a museum of these tiny liquor bottles that you would probably have seen in lots of places. And it turns out that there's a Norwegian billionaire who's collected like 70,000 of them. I mean, an insanely huge collection. And at one point, his late wife said, look, these need to get out of my house, <laughs> which I think we can all identify with. Right. And so the, the, the guy created the only solution that would be logical for a Norwegian billionaire, which is he built a museum for his bottles. And when he did that, he had 70,000 bottles. And someone had to go in and say, you know, we could take all 70,000 of these and basically stick them up as wallpaper. But it wouldn't be very meaningful. And instead what they did is they chose 10,000. They found themes around them. They created little rooms for them. And they basically did what every museum everywhere in the world does, which is they choose what to show you and what to put in the collection. And by choosing what to show you, they actually create meaning because now there's themes, there's, there's uh, stories, there's something to experience. And I think that that lesson is something we can really apply to our own lives to be able to curate ideas, to figure out what to pay attention to. Because there's a lot of noise in our lives too, right? There's a lot of things that, that attract our attention. And being smarter and more intentional about figuring out what to pay attention to and then finding the themes is a lesson that I think we can all use. So it's figuring out what to eliminate as well as what to keep in. Yeah, it's what to eliminate. And it's also, you know, what are the connections mm -hmm. between the things that I'm seeing? Got it. Uh, and one of the analogies I use often is, is we're all used to when we travel, we get our frequent flyer miles. And no one would take a trip from D.C. to L.A. and then turn around and say, okay, well, how, where do I use all my miles? Because you don't have enough yet, 
right? You haven't collected enough. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you collect the miles until you have enough to then do something with it. And if we could do that with our ideas, if we could collect ideas the way frequent flyers collect miles, I think that eventually we'd cash them in for bigger things. So you have to hold on to the ideas for a little while. Yeah, you have to have a good way of holding on to them, not writing it down on a piece of paper that you lose. That's not a good way (laughs) to do it. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Um, You talk in the book about uh, what you call a a curation mindset um, through building certain habits, five habits to be uh, specific. What are those five habits? Yeah, a curation mindset is, is really the idea that I'm going to save ideas even when I'm not sure what the meaning behind them is going to be. And so uh, when you think about doing that, I mean, you have to engage certain human elements. So you have to uh, be observant. You have to be able to have the ability to see the details, the things that most people don't see, uh, to pay attention to those details. You have to have curiosity. You have to be able to kind of think about, like, what is the, the piece of this that causes me to, like, ask the next question? Um, you have to be able to like take those pieces and think about like how am I going to eventually bring them around to something that's meaningful in my life. So that's kind of what I talk about, which is like uh, really what it elevates to is having a mindset to explore the world, explore the things that are out there. Okay, so you mentioned uh, being observant and being curious, um, bringing meaning. What are other habits that we can uh, bring to bear? So another one is uh, be elegant. And that's kind of an interesting one because being elegant is not something we generally think about. But to me, what it means is you choose your words intentionally. You don't just share the first thing that comes to your mind. You actually think about, like, how am I going to say these things and how am I going to say them in a, in a valuable way? Um, the other piece is be thoughtful. Uh, and being thoughtful does come, I think, from taking a little bit of time. I mean, when you take the time to connect the dots, to put the pieces together, you can actually start to see, like, what does this, what does this mean? Um, what's the, you know, what, do, what are the pieces of the puzzle and, and how do they all come together? And where they all come together is what you talk about is trends. And yes. So, so which is a lot of what your book is about. And uh if I'm reading your book correctly, it's where I, you, you talk about trends as where ideas, impact, and acceleration overlap. I'm sort of fascinated by this concept. Could you tell us more about it and, and, and then what qualifies as a trend? Yeah, there's a lot of confusion about trends, right? I mean, people look at lots of different things and they say, oh, that's a trend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that to me, a trend is a curate. My definition for it is that it's a curated observation of the accelerating present. Curated, we've talked about, you know, the importance of curating. Mm-hmm. Um, observation is, is sort of you're paying attention to the details. But the really important piece of that is the accelerating present. So to me, a trend is not something that could happen at some point in the future. It's not like a prediction of the future uh, that doesn't have any basis in now. So a lot of times people are like, oh, the trend might be like flying cars. Uh, but we don't really have flying cars now. Like, right. right. So to me, a trend is like something where there's signs of it right now. And what the prediction is, is that it's going to accelerate, that more people are going to change what they believe. They're going to change how they buy, how they sell, how they act, um, how they communicate based on what the trend says. So give us an example of a a current trend based on that definition. Yeah. So one of the trends that I um, that I wrote about that uh, that a lot of people were were kind of talking about once I wrote about it was something I called the strategic spectacle. 
Um, and the strategic spectacle was this idea that in a world where everything feels crowded and noisy, the only way to stand out is by creating a bigger spectacle. And sometimes a spectacle is spectacular, like in a good sense. Mm -hmm. And sometimes a spectacle is just like you're trying to attract the eyeballs by doing the thing that we all see online, right? That picture, that that headline of the article that says, you know, this star that you recognize from your past, you won't believe what she looks like now. And they're enticing you to click, right? Because, oh, what does she look like now? And now I want to know. Um, and that's like a little bit evil, right? Because now they're <laughs> not going to actually show you. They're going to make you click through 12 things before they show you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the problem. Like that is a spectacle. And they're doing it intentionally. And obviously they're doing it because the more page views they get, the more advertising they sell. And so we kind of know how it works, but we're still taken in by it. Mm. And when I started writing about that trend with this double-edged sword behind it, it really does lead you to start thinking about, well, Am I being engaged in a spectacle? Uh, is someone trying to capture my attention to do something uh, self-serving with it? Or is it a necessity that I now need to encounter that or at least communicate in that way to be able to use spectacle in, in a positive way? And what would be a positive way, right? So a lot of these trends, like, they kind of raise these questions and say that what does it take, in that one in particular, like, what does it take to stand out? What does it take to get attention mm-hmm. from someone? Can you give us a sense of a trend that might be more applicable within the the federal court system? Yeah, so there is a trend uh, that I wrote about called truthing, um, where I kind of turned truth into a a verb. And I think that's very applicable um, for the judiciary because one of the things that has become a problem in our culture is people are rapidly becoming super skeptical of everything because they don't know what to believe. They don't know what to trust. Uh, and they see uh, ridiculous media, they see marketing messages that are, are clearly promoting things that can't possibly exist. I mean, there's there's cereal brands that are promoted as all natural, even though clearly they're not grown, <laughs> you know, all natural. Like, it doesn't make sense. How could this be all natural, right? And so the, every time we have one of those situations, our, our faith in what we hear goes down just a little bit. And there's all of these surveys that say that trust in institutions in general is going down. And when that happens, uh, I think that psychologically uh, what people do is they start to retreat back into themselves. They go backwards into their own lives. They think about who they know and who they trust, and they put even more trust in them. And one of the most dangerous things about that is that I think that, that, and there's several people who have written about this, that it's possible to both be more informed and more narrow-minded at the same time because you just read the same thing over and over and you just believe it even more deeply. And the algorithm, right, on online doesn't actually give us anything that we don't agree with. Uh, it's really good at giving us the same thing we agree with over and over. And so mm-hmm. what ends up happening with that is we can't imagine why anyone would think differently than we do. And we assume that everyone who isn't thinking like us must be an idiot. And that's kind of what's happened. And and so the trend there was when I don't know what to trust, I put more faith in myself and what I already know, which sometimes means I get more narrow-minded as a result, even if I think of myself as open-minded. So help me understand how, if I'm an executive in the judiciary, how I can take that trend of truthing and use it to build trust in the institution which I've which I'm serving. 
Yeah, so um, that's an interesting uh, challenge because when people are retreating back into what they already know, now you have this challenge of, well, they have a worldview, and that's very difficult to change. Mm -hmm. Not impossible, but difficult. Mm -hmm. And when you know that, I think that it starts to shift how you communicate. Uh, because sometimes you can't communicate something from a worldview point of view if you don't have the same understanding when you're starting. And I think that for a lot of us who try and be students of what's happening in the world and to try and, and pay attention to it, one of the challenges for us is how do we prevent that from happening for ourselves, right? I mean, I'm, uh, we, were, we were talking about it earlier. I, I coach my kids um, in soccer, right? And one of the things I tell them as a coach, and, and a lot of coaches tell them is, look, don't worry about what your teammates did or what the opponents did. Like, you focus on your play. How can you make yourself better? Because that's really the thing you have the most control over. And I think at the end of the day, like, that applies to using a trend like this too, right? How do we make ourselves more open-minded? And so one of my favorite ways to, to do that, which I use all the time, is when I'm traveling, I'll go to a bookstore and I'll buy a magazine that's not targeted at, my, at myself. So I'll buy Teen Vogue magazine, which is like for 16-year-old <laughs> girls. I'll buy Modern Farmer magazine, uh, even though I, I can't grow anything uh, in the garden to save my life. And by doing that, I have this really curious experience where now I'll read stories that are tailored to someone else. I'll read about celebrities I've never heard of. I'll see ads for products that I didn't even realize people would want. And just by doing that, I start to see this world outside of what I know. And a magazine is a great way to do that because a lot of people don't realize that like when you go online and you Google something and I go online and Google something, we don't see the same results because our results are tailored to who we are based on all the things that Google knows about us. Right. And so it's impossible for us to have the same media experience online. But if you walk into the bookstore and buy that magazine and I buy it, we see the exact same magazine. And that's pretty powerful because now it's not customized. It's just this is the magazine. Like that's what it is. And it allows you to see this media and, and these stories that maybe you otherwise would never be able to see. Interesting. And it also changes your perspective. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it really can. So let's go back, if I could, uh, to this concept of curation and uh, specifically trend curation. And you use a term called the haystack method. Can you tell us what that is and how we might be able to use it? Yeah, the haystack method is kind of based on this cliche that a lot of times we've heard, which is you're searching for a needle in a haystack, right? And the haystack method says that's the wrong way to do it. Actually, the right way to see patterns in the world is to spend all of your time gathering the hay so that eventually you can take your own needle and stick it on top of it. And that's the trend. Uh, but it's based on collecting all of these stories and then spotting the patterns around them. So the haystack method really goes through a process that I use every year when I put together my trend report. And what it says is that the first step is gathering. So you're always collecting information, you're tearing articles out of magazines, you're taking down notes, you're, you're always saving ideas, uh, like a frequent flyer, right? The next phase of that is aggregating. And aggregating means, okay, what are the ideas that fit together? And it's not, okay, all of these ideas are, are based on retail. All of these ideas are based on finance. It's not grouped by industry. It's grouped by theme. So now you start to say, okay, what are the themes? Uh, the next stage is what I call elevating. And elevating is, what's the bigger idea behind this? So, for example, uh, at one point I was reading a lot about 3D printing. 
and everybody's like, oh, my God, 3D printing is the big trend. Uh, that's, you know, what everybody's going to have a 3D printer in their home. And a lot of times that's how that's how we mistake something that exists for a trend. Like 3D printing is not a trend. That's just a technology that exists. Whereas a couple of years ago, what a lot of people were talking about was something called the maker's movement, which was this idea that we want to make our own stuff. That's a trend. Mm-hmm. And 3D printing enables that, right? right? But there's other ways to enable that trend too of making your own stuff. You don't have to 3D print it, right? So now like that's an example of elevating the idea. It's not about 3D printing. It's about like what is the human element that allows 3D printing to be popular. So often I think we are actually responding to ideas, uh, which we, we have previously until now thought of as trends. Um, and what you're suggesting is that we should really be curating trends, that we should be trying to look for the trend and not just the idea. Why is this helpful or useful for, for our court leader audience, for example? Yeah, so, uh, and I, I am very conscious about taking it outside of trends as much as I can. I mean, trends are obviously valuable for me because I publish this report and then I get to go out and talk about it. So it's strategic for my business. Most people don't need to curate trends. Okay. What they need to use, though, is the skill of finding intersections between what they read and what they see because that allows them to have better ideas, to have less bias, uh, and to you know, just be more creative and more innovative as people. Uh, which has a huge effect in everything that they do. And so really what I try and advocate with this whole idea of non-obvious thinking isn't so much, you know, be a trend curator. I mean, yes, you could use this stuff to be a trend curator, but to me really it's be more open-minded. Like don't just read the same thing that everybody else reads and conclude the same thing. Like you're smarter than that. Uh, And you have to choose to read other things and put the pieces together. And if I can give you a process through the haystack method to make that a little bit easier, then great. But the output doesn't have to be trends. The output can just be great thinking or making yourself smarter or making yourself better. Got it. So applying the trend is actually more important in some ways. Yeah. Uh, well, imply, applying the thinking that gets you to the trend, I think. Okay. Um, now, there is a whole section of the book where I really do focus on, like, here are the trends right. and here's what you can do with it. Mm-hmm. So here's what you can do with it to either – start a new business, make your business more profitable, make your career better, uh, you know, make your life rise better. up, make your life better. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, actionable ideas behind each one of the trends. So there are really specific things around the trends. Um, but I'm very conscious a lot of times of not putting too much on someone's plate, right? I mean, look, people have a lot of stuff to do. Most people are not like me where there's an element of my business where I'm supposed to sit there and think about trends like all day long. Like it's a part of my work to do that. Right. Uh, For most people, like that's not something somebody's waking up and asking you for. Uh, But the concept of gathering and um, aggregating information is still useful for anyone in a leadership position. And you said earlier that you know, just kind of keeping notes, uh, scattered notes, isn't necessarily the best way to do that. So if, if, I am, if I'm a court leader and I want to be more curious and I want to look for ideas that are out there and I want to kind of make sense of these, maybe I don't want to do what you do and put a trend report together, but I really want to uh, broaden my um, my observations. How do you recommend I go about doing that? What I found over and over again with with really smart people uh, is that they do some piece of this already. They're already looking for interesting ideas. They already read books. They already read interesting things. 
What they don't usually do is have some sort of a disciplined way to save that for later consumption. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is they'll read something great and they'll think about it for a little while and then they'll forget and they'll move on to other stuff. And the challenge with that is that sometimes you leave your best ideas on the table because you're not building, you're not accruing anything, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're not amassing anything. Um, and so it's just kind of like the difference between saving your money by sticking it in your pillow or putting it somewhere where you actually get interest on it. Mm -hmm. And to me, like when you start using a disciplined process where you can now make the connections between ideas, you start to think bigger. And thinking bigger is hard in our daily lives, right? I mean, some people are charged with being in a role of innovation where their job is to think bigger. And even they struggle with it mm -hmm. because it's hard to just look at a blank piece of paper and be like, all right, come up with an idea nobody's come up with before. <laughs> uh, I mean, how would you do that, right? Right. But if you have the right ammunition, then you can start to see the connections and that happens a lot more easily. So give us a sense of what a system might look like. And maybe you can even give us a, a window into your world. You're doing this all the time. Give us some practical advice. Yeah, so there's a couple of things I do. So one is whenever I read a book, I always use these little colored tabs to save the most interesting parts of the book so that I can flip through the book later and see what I thought was interesting. So you're reading physical books then? Physical okay. books, yep, yep. But you can do the same thing on ebooks also. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can save tabs and stuff. Sure. It's just it's less visual, mm -hmm. which is why I prefer the physical book. Um, the other thing I do is I always have a notebook on me, uh, which is like a tiny passport-sized notebook. So it's, it fits in my pocket. You know, if, you're, if you carry a purse, it fits in your purse, whatever. Uh, and so I always have something where I can write down interesting ideas. So if you were to tell me, oh, I read this book. It's awesome. you got to read it. I'll always have a place to write that down. So I'll never lose it. And it's in a notebook. It's not in a scrap of paper. Um, the other thing I do is I have a folder on my desk that's just labeled ideas. And whenever I find interesting magazine articles, I don't put a lot of pressure on myself to say, what does this mean? Mm. I just read it, and if I think, oh, that's interesting. That made me think. I'll just tear it out, stick it in the folder. Now, imagine doing that every day for nine months. Mm -hmm. How big would that folder be? And then going through that folder and saying, hmm, let me see what I saved in February. and How does that relate to something I saved in June? And seeing those connections, now it becomes a lot more easy to understand how you might come up with bigger ideas because you're looking at them on a time span that most people aren't. Interesting. So so your time span is about nine months to a year, right? You're doing this it every has time. been every year that I've done. So I've done the report now for nine years. Right. So it started in 2011. Um, and every year there's been a new version of it. This year, uh, I did something a little bit different because I'm looking back over the last 10 years of research and the new version of the book will be non-obvious megatrends. And so that's actually going to take into account the past 10 years. So recently I've been looking at like 10 years worth of stuff. Uh, That's and probably fascinating. Yeah, it really is because some of the things have, have changed. Um, some of them have just been like different manifestations of a similar idea. I mean, I've done a lot of study around uh, the evolution of, of gender, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been really interesting just to see like how it's moved from a trend uh, like four years ago, which I called fierce femininity, which was all about like women taking back power. And there was like hunger games, you know, like the hero was not a princess in a tower. It was like a woman who was killing everybody. Right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what that was like what we were seeing um, towards now where I think we're much more in a world of, of um, ungendered. Uh, where gender sort of become this like statement as opposed to like a binary question. 
and you know, Mattel just released a gender neutral doll, right? Like all of this stuff is is really shifting how we see really this thing that used to be the second question on a form, right? You'd put in your name and then you'd put male or female. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> that was that was it. Now it's like Facebook has uh, you know, 70 plus options uh, for gender. And if those aren't enough for you, they have a write in option where you can just write in whatever you want. That's how it shifted over that 10 year period. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So the, the key, it sounds like for you is at some point to look back at all the things that you've gathered to try to make sense out of them. Yeah, it's uh, it's partially to look back um, and see the connections. And it's it's really about, well, what does this mean for the future? Mm-hmm. Like if this is how we are seeing all of these different things from technology. I mean, there's fascinating technology that's happened, like uh, thirsty concrete, right? The idea that we can make this concrete that like basically drinks rain and prevents flooding. I mean, these are the sorts of things that are out there as technology, right? And what does that elevate to? Well, one of the things I've been writing and then thinking about is uh, technology that proactively protects us uh, in every situation, protects the environment around us, protects us from ourselves in some case. I mean, there was this... Uh, vending machine that uh, launched one year at the Consumer Electronics Show that w- connected with healthcare data and would scan your face and based on your healthcare data would prevent you from getting the candy bar if uh, wow. you know you were unhealthy, which maybe is kind of extreme, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing that we're starting to see. And so a lot of it is like, well, what's the new idea? What are the pieces of that? And then what does that mean for the future in terms of what we're going to start seeing more and more of? Rohit, this has been so interesting. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience? Uh, no, I mean, uh, the, the new book will be out January 7th. So that is uh, on its way. Um, and that'll be the last 10 years. So that's been a Herculean effort to get that uh, across, the, across the line. So I'm really, imagine. really excited about it. Um, and, uh, and I just can't wait to hear what people think of it. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you. Thank you again so much for being here. Thank you. If you're interested in learning more about today's episode, visit the executive education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap on Executive Edge Podcast. Did you know that Executive Edge can be delivered directly to your computer or mobile device? Simply go to your podcast app, search for Executive Edge, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Executive Edge is produced by Jennifer Richter and directed by Craig Bowden. I'm Lori Murphy. Thanks for listening. Until next time.